Um, welcome everybody to this um, joint seminar between the Palestine Exploration Fund, PEF, Council for British Research in the Levant, CBRL, and UCL Press. Uh, my name is Carol Palmer, and I'm the director of CBRL, speaking to you from um, Amman, Jordan. It's a great pleasure to have you all with us um, this afternoon or this evening or this morning, wherever you are. I think we've got quite a broad geographic uh, coverage um, today in, in all the members who, who are here with us. Today, we're delving into the history of archeology, span specifically the archeologist Olga Tufnell for the book launch of Olga Tufnell's Perfect Journey, published by UCL Press, edited by and introduced by Jack Green and Roz Henry, who are with us here today to give the presentation and speak to questions. Um, we, I'm also delighted that um, co-hosting, co-chairing is Felicity Cobbing, um, chief executive and curator from the PEF, actually sitting in the PEF offices <laughs> today. And also to welcome Amara Thornton, who is um, founder and coordinator of the History of Archaeology Network at the UCL Institute of Archaeology and author of Archaeologists in Print. So the running order today is I'm introducing and I'll be giving some housekeeping notes shortly. Um, and I will then hand over to my colleague at the PEF, Felicity, to give a little bit of background on um, the Olga Tufnell archive collection that is held at the PEF and a bit of its history and how it came to them. And then um, Amara Thornton is going to set the scene for us. Um, about the archaeologists of the time and some of her work um, as well in the UCL archives. And then we'll hand over to Jack Green, who will give the main, the main presentation um, today um, for around 30 minutes. And, and then we'll open up for questions, starting, starting with some questions from Amara and um, Felicity. Um, so, uh, I think all of you know our organizations, or many of you know our organizations very well. Um, CBRL um, is one of the British Academies, um, British International Research Institutes. Um, we have an office at the British Academy, and we have two, um, two institutes in the region, one in Amman and one in Jerusalem. Please look us up if you don't know us already on our website for more information. And please also look up the PF on their website for more information on them. And I'm sure Felicity will provide some more information now. In terms of housekeeping, um, we're managing this through questions today through the chat. Um, we're not using, some of you may be familiar with the Q&A function normally in webinars, but today we're going to use the chat for communication. Um, if you'd like to introduce yourself, I'm aware that uh, we as panelists can see who's here, but if you'd like to introduce yourself, um, please 
do say um, hello in the chat. And later on, please do feel free. Um, we very much encourage you to, um, to put your questions also in the chat. But if you have a question, please could you mark it with a Q um, before so that we know that you have a question and we will try to answer in the time we have available as many questions as possible. Um, please try to be short <laughs> with your questions and, um, and to the point. And uh, we hope we'll have a very, very good discussion with both um, Jack and uh, Ros Henry, who's with us as well, and, and our discussants here today. So I'm going to hand over now to Felicity at the PF to do the introductions from the PEF side. So thank you. Hello, everybody. Um, my name is Felicity, and I'm the chief executive and curator at the Palestine Exploration Fund in London. And Olga Tufnell had a very long uh, association with the PEF, uh, which lasted um, for decades. She joined our committee in 1942 and was still serving on the committee when she died in 1985. So I don't think she's the longest serving member of the committee in our history, but she's certainly up there with you know, kind of, you know, the, the, the top three people, I reckon. Um, right from the beginning of her association with the PEF, she was really a champion of the archives and the collections that we have. She recognized um, the value of, of the material for study, for teaching, for research. And she was ahead of her time in many ways. She was a particular champion, for example, of our castes collection, which a lot of people don't necessarily consider very important, but they're very, very useful as accessible uh, copies of material which may otherwise be uh, out of reach of many re researchers for whatever reason that may be. So um, she was she was a very uh, perceptive person, I think, and she lent her um, skill, her intelligence and her dedication to the PEF in many different ways. I get the feeling, having read the minute books, that she had her finger in all sorts of pies. Her influence was very um, widely spread on the committee and was very beneficial to the committee. But in particular, her main contribution to the PEF was in organizing our centenary exhibition in 1965, um, which was held at the V&A in London, very prestigious venue, and which ran from October to the end of December in 1965. This was our centenary exhibition, and it was entitled The World of the Bible. And it came with a catalog. I don't know if you can see that there which uh, lists the objects etc that were in the exhibition and it loaned objects from lots and lots of different organizations from the British Museum from the Ashmolean the Bodleian Library the Wellcome Historical Medical Museum uh, the Queen's Library the BM's Department of Manuscripts as well so a really kind of holistic um, look at the, the work that the PEF and others had done in the region over the last hundred years since our foundation in 1865. Um, when the V&A run closed, uh, the 
exhibition was kind of transformed with the assistance of the British Council into a traveling exhibition that first of all went to the Middle East and it was made up of panels, information panels, photographs and so on and so forth. And it traveled all around. It went to the American University in Beirut and to the National Museum in Damascus, to Amman and even to Baghdad. Um, and it was a huge success. And in this form, it was entitled 100 Years of Exploration and Archaeology. And then it came back to the UK and it did the rounds here as well, all over the place, everywhere from Edinburgh down to Southampton to Bristol to um, Bolton to Middlesbrough twice. So lots of keen, enthusiastic people in Middlesbrough. Um, and it was a really, really big success and got the PEF many, many more members than actually the V&A run itself had done. Um, so she was an extremely um, dedicated, hardworking and uh, uh, energetic person um, with lots and lots of practical application for her skills as well. When she died in 1985, um, a Tufnell fund was established by the PEF, which went on to fund uh, traveling uh, students so that they could come and kind of do a piece of work in the Middle East for a short period of time. And this uh, person was designated the Tufnell Scholar. And this uh, money basically lasted until about the late 1990s. So it wasn't an, not an inconsiderable sum of money. And of course, the last thing that happened when she died is that her collection of personal papers and records and photographs were deposited at the Palestine Exploration Fund. Um, and it's a huge archive. It uh, covers her almost her entire life from when she was a young girl right through to her death. Um, it was first organized by Heather Bell, who was then the librarian of the PEF. And then over a period of almost, well, a year and a half, really, by our um, on sec honorary secretary, uh, John McDermott. Um, and if anyone knows the letters intimately um, on, <laughs> for the whole of her time, then, uh, uh, then it's John, definitely. Um, so he spent, yes, as I say, about a year and a half cataloging them and making them available for research so that people like Jack can delve into the archives and source the material so much more easily. Thank you very much. Um, I'm delighted to be here and thank you for inviting me to be a discussant today. Um, just as a, by way of introduction, I did my PhD on British archaeologists uh, working in the Eastern Mediterranean and Middle East. Um, and uh, among them, you know, many people who would have been known to Olga Tafnell. And in fact, when I was flipping through the book yesterday, I just happened across um, a reference to um, Olga Tafnell meeting Agnes Conway, who was one of the key people in my PhD um, in Athens after, after she and her husband had left Jordan. So it was very nice to see, a, if you like, a familiar face in, in Olga Tafnell's letters. Um, but my first really intensive introduction to Olga Tufnell wasn't through documents, um, but actually through film. In 2014, uh, um, I and a number of colleagues in the Institute of Archaeology, the Department of English, and the Department of Information Studies at UCL began to, a project to digitize and research some home movies that belonged to the archaeologists 
Gerald Lancaster Harding, who was one of Olga Tufnell's close and long-standing archaeological colleagues and friends. Indeed, um, in her letter of uh, the 14th of November, 1930, which is in the book, um, Olga recorded uh, that um, H. Harding had, has a very fine cine Kodak. So you may look forward to seeing some funny pictures when we come back. At four daily, I, I sally forth with various bottles and dose the whole work. He took me doing it the other day. In fact, every incident of the day will get done in time. And it was very nice that we were able to marry up this quote, quotation from Olga Tefnel's letter with a short film, which we had numbered um, LH3, um, where we see Olga dispensing her mysterious liquid out of a very large dark bottle. I have no idea what the liquid was, but um, she's there dispensing it nonetheless. Um, in another letter dated the 30th of November, uh, Olga Chuck discusses how the films became part of on-site entertainment. So she says, uh, the cines have come out beautifully. S and H have invented a magic lantern out of a biscuit box, too professional to show the pictures. They enlarge to a foot across and show up well. What we want is a projector. I think that they probably got a projector at some point because there are um, lots of films that Harding made and even films that were made by Pathé, the film company. Um, so it was a bit like um, sort of blockbuster, if you like, <laughs> an equivalent. Um, but anyway, Harding's home movies sit alongside the formal excavation film, which was entitled Lakish City of Judah. Um, the work of photographer Ralph Richmond Brown, who is another key figure in the letters. Um, and this film we also digitized as part of the project. Both of the films give us a unique and moving, in more senses than one, insight into many of the themes that come up in Olga's correspondence as it's published in um, the book that we're launching today. So the themes include sophistication of international travel, the enticing allure of a foreign landscape, the adventure of archaeology, if you like, very common trope, the bustle of excavations, the discovery of artifacts, and the exposure to new communities, uh, new cultures, and crafts. And underpinning all of this, obviously, is the fact that this is a colonial um, context in which this work is being done. Olga appears on camera quite regularly. So in Lakish City of Judah, which is this official film, we see her at work in the eye hospital, preparing drawings of scarabs even thanks to Wendy Slaninka's uh, recent identification, excavating and conserving animal bones with hot wax. This is the formal vision of the excavation with title cards that give a bit of narrative structure. And you can see um, in one of the films um, on the links that are being shared with you, um, the title, an example of the title cards. And um, no one's name is mentioned specifically in the, the title cards in the film, but Olga is most definitely on display. Harding's home movies, however, give us a, a slightly raw or more unmanicured vision of work and life in Mandate Palestine. So obviously most of the sequences were probably also to a certain extent staged, and this is more obvious in some cases than others. So for example, one short film shows Olga participating with James Leslie Sarkey in the selection of workers, 
were seated on the ground as she and Starkey stand over them. In another, Olga, Lancaster Harding, and James Starkey each take turns to pose artistically in the sunlight. Um, we also see some of the um, amusements, if you like. One memorable sequence, which was filmed intentionally backwards, shows Olga and an Asia and having a drink and a banana inside one of the excavated chambers, most likely at Teljuir, but we're not sure. At the end of the scene, they leap backwards out of the room to the ground surface. The films we digitized were silent. Oldest correspondence, which is now available thanks to Jack and Raza's efforts in a, a manner that is probably, um, that is definitely not, hasn't been available to date, gives us a soundtrack to the film, um, Olga's voice and her experiences. So maybe someday the two can come together. Thank you very much. Okay, so, so thank you very much for those introductions. I'm now going to invite um, Jack Green <laughs> to share his presentation and uh, with us. So Jack, um, please uh, tell us about the book and uh, Olga Tufnell's letters. Great, thank you, uh, Carol, very much. It's really wonderful to be here. I am so excited about this book launch event and um, it's wonderful uh, to be able to share this with you today. Um, it's a pleasure to be here on behalf of myself and also Roz Henry. Um, we wanna thank the organizers of the webinar, um, book launch, the CBRL, the PEF, especially Carol, of course, and, and Felicity, as well as Alison Fox of UCL Press and also our discussion, of course, we just heard from uh, Amara Thornton. We're looking forward to having more discussion later. Um, we also wanna thank everyone who helped with the publication and the research of this book. And a lot of that was the Palestine Exploration Fund as well, but not only, uh, many others, including the British Museum and, uh, and many other institutions. And, and actually they're acknowledged in the book. And also at the end of this presentation, there's almost too many to mention. Uh, but I thank all of them, we thank all of them for this, uh, for bringing this to fruition. Um, so in this short presentation, I'm going to be uh, presenting an overview of the book uh, and of Olga Tafnil Roz, as, as mentioned before, will be, she's here, but she and she'll be uh, able to answer questions in the Q&A. Um, so what I'd like to do in this overview is not only give a sense of the book and an overview of Olga Tafnil, but also a little bit about how the book developed and as well as providing opportunities to show how the book can be used by researchers and others who are not necessarily archaeologists, um, many people interested in social history, history of mandate period Palestine, there's actually a wide range of um, areas that this book can also uh, speak to. But first let's introduce Olga Tufnell to you here. And I'll preface this by just adding that we, um, in the book and also in this presentation, I'll be alternating between the use of Olga Tufnell as a full title, but also just Olga sometimes too. And there's a reason for that because really throughout the whole process of doing this book and re researching and reading the letters, she signed all of her letters to her mother, just Olga. 
and I think that Roz and I, we both have kind of, in a way, got to know Olga through the letters. Roz knew her, of course, herself. Um, and so there's, it's an attempt to also be a bit more personal. It's not to diminish in any way uh, Olga Tufnell as an academic or a researcher. It's just simply from a personal point of view. Um, so she, uh, she was an archaeologist, Olga Tufnell. She was born in 1905. She died in 1985. And she's familiar to many of you uh, who are archaeologists, of course, uh, because of the uh, publications she um, stewarded through and edited uh, the Lakish or Lakish, depending on how you pronounce it, the volumes from um, the uh, Iron Age, the Bronze Age, and also the Foss Temple. So she was a key person in the excavations, uh, but also in these publications. And I think anyone who's used these publications uh, from Tel Aviv um, will know how useful they still are even today after 70 years. And it's really testament to her scholarship, her patience, her dedication, um, and her thoughtfulness in terms of preparing the kinds of information she's preparing. And really the information in these volumes have stood the test of time. It's kind of a, it was certainly a type site um, in back in the 50s when this was published, but it still continues to be a type site today for the archeologists who are working there uh, in the region. So I think that's how many, many people are known to uh, Olga, but um, you will also, uh, so just to also show you a little bit about her background, how did she get to that point of uh, being an archeologist and working in um, the Levant and in, in Palestine at that time? Well, as I said, she was born in 1905 into, uh, I would say, privileged uh, surroundings. You can see here um, the Tufnell family at Langley's in 1911. And Langley's is uh, the Tufnell, was the Tufnell family estate in Great Waltham, Essex, and it was the home of Olga's grandparents. She's actually in this photograph in the uh, vehicle on the left-hand side, aged about six years old. And um, so she came from a, a, a prosperous and influential uh, family in England. And, and she went on to um, really, how did she go on from here to become an archeologist? Um, she, um, she basically, uh, she was educated both in England uh, and also uh, in uh, Belgium before the First World War. But uh, she, in her examination, she failed mathematics and that actually could have led to her not pursuing an academic career sort of after that or going on to further studies. And then she went on to um, study, she went to uh, study art at an English-Italian school in Florence um, as an older teen. And on her return, and this was now in post-World War I Britain, she didn't follow a sort of conventional um, life. She didn't um, uh, marry that time or, or later in her life. And she didn't um, follow a correct conventional career only, but either, but she, this had a kind of silver lining for her because she was able to uh, pursue her interests, travel and have a, a pretty independent life. Uh, so there are lots of new opportunities. We'll be moving on to that in a moment. But I just want to also highlight here some of the a range of photographs in different kind of settings, including uh, filming antiquity 
uh, of course, that Amara mentioned as well. And I encourage you to go to the website and see those videos. Um, but how did um, Olga, as someone without that formal training or university degree, become increased, you know, in, get into archaeology? Uh, this was a time when it was becoming increasingly professionalized. And then she ended up really making a lifetime of research out of it. So we'll take a look at the letters and we'll take a look at the, um, the story of this uh, period of about 10 years, which were really formational for her. Um, and we want to look at the archives themselves. And uh, I, may, I show here on the left, the Palestine Exploration Fund, uh, sort of summary of the archives. And you can see here that the period of these letters that this book is about, is about 10 years. And so it's only really part of the archive. As Felicity mentioned, John McDermott has exhaustively listed and cataloged all of the letters right up until her death. So we have, a, there's a huge archive at the, the PEF. I encourage you to go and, and see those. And also there are related archives. Uh, there's the Welcome Master the Archaeological uh, Research Expedition Archive at the British Museum, UCL, uh, the Petrie Museum, and also the Institute of Archaeology has related archives. The Welcome Trust or Welcome Collection, as it is now, uh, Egypt Exploration Society, and others, as well as the Starkey Family Archive uh, as well. So there's, there's a whole range of resources here. And just to show you some of these letters, uh, this, is, this is also part of the challenge. You can see here, here's a handwritten letter on the left, and here's one of the typed letters on the right. And it's interesting to note that, um, as Bisti mentioned, Heather Bell had a lot to do with this in terms of bringing these eventually to the, the them coming to the PEF. Um, but also Roz has played a really key role here because it was Roz who knew um, Olga personally from her time from 1955 when she first walked into the Institute of Archaeology and she met Olga and became, um, uh, ended up working as an assistant for her, um, proofreading and also uh, piecing together sherds uh, from the site of Teller de Weir to help towards the publication. And it was later on, um, at the time of uh, Olga's death, um, Ross had co-written an obituary and then subsequently um, became interested in um, doing something with the letters to make them available. And um, Jonathan Tubb, then at the British Museum, also the PEF, played a key role in making those letters accessible to Ros so she could um, use them, um, uh, she could work on them. Um, and she did a lot to transcribe and also to uh, order these into the correct sequence because it's often difficult knowing which dates they are sometimes. So they don't always have the year on them. You can also see the handwriting is challenging. Um, and that's actually occupied a lot of our time, both Ros and I trying to work out what some words uh, mean. So um, it was uh, in 2007 that I um, uh, met Ros for the first time when I was studying and researching in the British Museum, working with Jonathan Tubb. And I was introduced to her and it was mentioned, would you like to be involved in some way in helping this project to you know, become a book or to edit these, these letters, provide some context, some archeological context to the letters? I said, sure, that would be great. Well, here we are, it's many years later, we've got there finally. And I have to say thank you as well to Carly Crouch uh, for uh, who was the publications committee chair for the PEF for making also the suggestion to 
reach out to UCL Press, who have done a great job to bring this book to fruition. Um, so the letters themselves, they really shed light um, on the archaeological arena during the British mandate in Palestine in the 20s and 30s. This is often described, uh, has been described as a sort of golden age of biblical archaeology. And this is when important discoveries were being made uh, with use of scientific methods. And also there was a large amount of funding available for donors and also a relatively, um, it was relatively inexpensive in terms of hiring local wo uh, workers to work on these projects too. So this combined to the ability to do these projects on a pretty large scale. So other major projects that were going on at the time um, included uh, the Department of Antiquities in Palestine, uh, the University of Pennsylvania at Beth Shan, uh, the British School of Archaeology in uh, Jerusalem, Jericho, PEF, and the Harvard University with the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in Samaria, and the University of Chicago at Megiddo, to name a few. And of course, there were the Linda's Petrie digs, as well as Tel Aviv, which we'll get onto in a moment. Yet this um, sort of golden age portrayal, it does. Um, so it's dominated by Anglo-American projects and it's often idealized and it neglects this social and political challenges and tensions at play in this period, especially the turbulent setting of the Arab revolt in the late 1930s, as well as inequalities between foreign archeologists and local workforces. So the archives, they shed some light on the people who worked and spent time with each other across the, this very big social uh, political divide um, and across different social spheres, what they did on their days off, how their attitudes, experiences, and practices shaped archaeological knowledge, as well as their part, the, the part that they played in colonial and imperial structures uh, in, within society. And the archives also provide insights into biographical networks. And so through some of these photographs, the captions, letters, you can actually identify individuals, not just the foreign archaeologists that you see here on the left, like Lancaster Harding, Mrs. Petrie, Lady Petrie, Starkey, Risden, but also um, the workers uh, on these projects too. And, and there needs to be more work to kind of get more information about the workers and uh, who they were and how they contributed to the archaeology of this time too. The letters also um, give us a lot of information about travel and also tourism. And this is really interesting because um, the, they, they give us, we have photographs, but also it tells us about how people traveled at that time uh, before uh, planes and how they traveled around the region of the, of the Middle East and uh, the East Mediterranean. Um, have some fantastic photographs from all these travels um, from all over, from Cyprus, Egypt, Lebanon, um, Syria and Turkey and uh, as well as Palestine. Um, also there's the diabolical strength which was an overland car journey which is one of the chapters in the book. It's also the topic of a book by H.H. McWilliams called The Diabolical Strength. It's an overland journey uh, all the way from Jerusalem to London and it's quite hair-raising and there's a lot of really uh, interesting insights into how people travel. You can see some images of the vehicle here and I, I urge you to take a look at the book. It's very, very entertaining. Um, uh, but now let's, let's turn to back to Olga and her, um, sort of how she got into archaeology, some social relationships. 
we really have to think of Olga as a Petri pup. Uh, that was someone who had worked basically being trained by and had become a kind of mentee of Flinders Petrie, but also Hilda's Petrie too. So Flinders and Hilda Petrie, Flinders Petrie uh, being the Egypt, uh, Egyptian archeologist at UCL at that time, and also Hilda Petrie, um, who was an archeologist in her own right as well. And they worked together on these projects. And also they had, uh, they managed the uh, British School of Archeology span so it was actually uh, Flinders Petrie um, and Hilda Petrie who gave Olga the first opportunity. Uh, it was um, Olga's mother, Blanche Tufnell, was a family friend and good friend of Hilda Petrie. And when it was time for Olga to find uh, a job and find something to do, she got the opportunity to help out with one of the summer exhibitions that uh, they were organizing in London. And after that, she became um, the assistant secretary at the British School of Archaeology in Jerusalem, so answering the phone, soliciting donations, and helping out with the objects as well. Uh, it's about five years before she got invited or she accepted, don't know which way round it was, to go with Petrie um, to Egypt for the first time in 1927. And so there she became inaugurated as a Petrie pup, and there's an article by Olga about her reminiscences in the PEQ, the, the Quarterly of the Palestine Exploration It was probably um, Olga's artistic skills that may have led her to Cal uh, al-Kabir in Egypt. Um, so she was, uh, she went there for a short season in um, late 1927 uh, to copy, to make copies of the wall paintings in these uh, tombs in Middle Egypt. And um, she went with Myrtle Broom, uh, who may be known to some of you as well in Egyptology. She, um, she's got some of really vivid accounts from this time. It's her first time in the Middle East and in North Africa. She's really excited. She's writing a lot of detail about what's going on. So if you want to find out more, please do read the letters. Um, she then went immediately on that, that Christmas to uh, Tel Farah uh, South, or Tel Farah as it's more commonly referred to. Uh, in southern Palestine um, and she joined the team there and you can see some of the team members in this photograph here um, and she was learning really quickly here at this point in terms of uh, how to manage the workers that she was now responsible for and I quote one of these um, letters she writes uh, work is in full swing and I'm out on the cemetery all day we have now 47 skulls and I'm waiting for for more to turn up to complete the round 50. There are two kuftis and about 50 men boys on my beat. My job is to keep the boys at it and to record anything that turns up and be on the spot generally. The Arabic moves on now, now that I hear little else all day. And I have to try to make myself understood. You should have seen me sacking a boy yesterday. Nobody was more surprised than myself. It was a fine sight. The men are very good workers and really reliable. And this S, Starkey, does the round frequently. The day is pretty full up. We come in for lunch at 12 till one and then carry on till sunset. After that, there's drawing to be done and general clearing up until bedtime. So a pretty full day, um, I would say. Um, so I, we're not sure why, why she took a break in the season here, but she, in 1929, she went on to Cyprus where she volunteered, was volunteering for the Cyprus Museum and the Swedish 
Cyprus ex exhibition and she was doing watercolors and illustrations for objects in the museum. She spent much of that time also visiting archaeological sites and taking photographs and also documenting ethnographic um, aspects of life in Cyprus, especially weaving and also pottery making as well. And she's got these fantastic photographs from Kornos, which uh, she visited with Joan Duplat Taylor, who was emerging in Cypriot archaeology at that time, another British archaeologist associated with the Institute of Archaeology. And it's still an important place today for the study of the ethnography of pottery making. And after Cyprus, she went on to Tel El Jewel with the Petries for a couple of seasons. And I just want to add here that there's actually not a huge amount in the letters that really talk about the archaeology. We have to tease that out in the introductory uh, material. But this was really uh, a time of Petrie's interest in, Flinders Petrie's interest in Egypt over the border in Palestine. He couldn't work in Egypt anymore, which is why he went there. And he was really interested in the Hyksos or in the second intermediate period. So the first half of the second millennium BC. And you can see a picture of one of the equid burials that Olga uh, Tufnell had a hand in excavating. There's also settlement remains uh, from there as well. Um, so this was a really important site archaeologically. Um, but um, it's worth mentioning here the archaeological labor aspect at this point. And I mentioned the Kuftis in Olga's letter before. And it's really important to understand the huge amount of work that was involved here. And the Guftis were um, Egyptian uh, workers who'd been trained under Petrie and um, almost in a sort of hereditary way. It's often the, the sons of former of other workers who'd ended up working for him as well. And he brought groups of Guftis with him from the village of Kuft in Egypt to Palestine to work on the excavations as well. And they stayed with him uh, throughout. Um, and at this point, it's also worth mentioning the, the importance of archaeological labor. They, they were foremen largely, um, and they were, were more skilled archaeologists in a sense, uh, having a lot of experience with mud brick. Um, so they had skills that they were adding here. But uh, it's worth reading on this topic of archaeological labor, the work of Alison Nickel, uh, also Rachel Sparks on Petrie's excavations, and also Wendy Doyon. Uh, for further research on the Guftis in the Levant beyond Egypt. It's also worth considering the local Palestinian workers who were there um, alongside. And, uh, they included men, women, and children, both from the local villages, uh, the Fellahim, as well as semi-nomadic semi Bedouin, who would camp near the site uh, and conduct work there. Um, so uh, as with most excavations, the most work was done by gangs of men, uh, diggers who filled the baskets, and then uh, often children who carried the baskets, and women and children also sieved for fines. They weren't paid a huge amount. Um, workmen were paid two shillings a day, which is about seven pounds today in sterling, and children uh, were paid uh, uh, one shilling. Um, and so I just, I'll move on at this point, but it's important to also note that the label is not only used for archaeology, but also for uh, digging canals, such as this uh, image on the right, which is digging a canal to flush out the malarial mosquitoes. So this was a public health mission as well as being an archeological mission. So it's about that intersection, which we'll come to again in a moment. So after much uh, deliberation, uh, 
Olga made the hard choice to leave the peak trees uh, in 1932 uh, to join her friends and colleagues who decided to make a break for it and start a new project at Teled the Weir, which is ancient Lakish or Lakish. Uh, James Leslie Starkey was the director and um, Lancaster Harding, Ralph Richmond Brown, uh, Colt, Harris Dunscombe Colt, and Olga all went at the same time. The site was already uh, thought to be biblical uh, uh, lakeish at that time by Albright and Garstang, although Petrie had favored, favored uh, Telohesi uh, as Lakish or Lakish. Uh, Dewey was also being compared at that time with uh, Sennacherib's Siege of Lakish Relief, which is in the British Museum. And it's easy to see why with its imposing scale. Um, this expedi expedi expedition was to last six seasons and cover uh, important findings, including a late Bronze Age Canaanite temple, um, New Kingdom shrine, uh, Persian period residency, many tombs, evidence of Assyrian and Babylonian destructions, as well as the, the famous Lakish letters, which provided insights into the organization of the defenses of Kingdom of Judah and on the eve of its destruction by the Babylonians. Uh, many scarab seals were found as well, and this became a major focus of Olga's uh, research in later years. Uh, the findings at, uh, at, at Lakish were also very important in terms of biblical connections and public archaeology. Financial supporters, uh, including Sir Charles Marston, went on to write popular books using findings from Lakish to help prove the veracity of the Bible. Um, an important part of uh, was camp life, uh, and the camp was organized on the Petrie model, including long, low, uh, low mud, brick and stone buildings around a courtyard. Uh, they had mixed camp, which is uh, a practice that was frowned upon by the contemporary American archaeologist, uh, W.F. Albright. Uh, he had kept the sexes apart unless they were married. And it's worth noting that also Dorothy Garrard at this, around this time was conducting the first female-only dig uh, at the Carmel Caves. And other British-led uh, projects were not uh, so prudish or didn't have so much of a problem with women, whether they were married or unmarried, participating in these excavations. Um, also, you see here on the bottom left, Hubda and Aisha, who were um, uh, who helped with a lot of the domestic needs within the um, camp as well. Um, and clearly one of the most important uh, elements of a successful expedition is the keeping of good local relations. And all these letters allude to what appeared to be largely peaceful interactions um, that included visits to uh, the homes of village leaders, um, invitations to dinner, attendance of events. And one of the oldest letters of 1933 does refer to disputes between the expedition, expedition and the local landowners over the use of agricultural land on and around the Tell. And this included the location of the dig camp itself. We return to that in a moment. But one of the other really um, important, there are other uh, fun activities, of course, as well, fancy dress parties, um, there's also John Starkey, you can see here on the top right. And John, if you're joining us from Canada, hello. It's, I hope you are. I hope you're well. Uh, but this is John Starkey as a, a young boy who, was, who grew up on the digs. And uh, when he was, uh, had, had two nannies there, and he actually spoke more Arabic than he did English uh, for much of that time. 
So um, there's also, of course, documenting uh, traditions and lifestyles. Olga was very keen on learning about uh, ornamentation, uh, personal uh, dress and costume elements, and she took photographs and, and made sketches and also collected objects and items, some of which are now in the British Museum. In addition to the archaeological responsibilities at Tel Aviv, um, as well as earlier on at Tel Farah and also Tel Aviv, um, she made a major contribution in terms of the clinic and also the what, what was also known as the Eye Hospital. Um, it, uh, she wrote letters to Dr. John Stratham uh, of the Eye Hospital in Jerusalem, um, and she talked about undertaking training there. Uh, and this really shows her commitment to helping local people, assisting with their health needs. Uh, she writes that she could sometimes serve or, or treat 30 to 40 people a day. Uh, many people who came had eye diseases. Uh, malaria was a much more common ailment in the coastal plain area where they'd been before. Um, conjunctivitis, trachoma, uh, these are common eye, eye complaints, infections. Uh, so given the numbers that we're dealing with here, the clinic must have filled a really important gap uh, in terms of public health in this more rural area. People were coming from a long way. Um, so this must have had a very positive impact on the local community. And it's really this intersection between humanitarianism and archaeology, which I think is interesting and I think should be explored further in the history of archaeology. I don't think it's been covered very much. Um, moving on um, to a more traumatic event and topic, um, a series of articles in the Palestine Exploration Quarterly have delved into the tragic murder of the director of the Tel Aviv expedition, James Leslie Starkey, in 1938. Uh, Starkey was shot uh, near Hebron by armed robbers or, or insurgents who ambushed his car on the way to Jerusalem, uh, where he was going to attend the opening of the Palestine Archaeological Museum. Uh, the commonly accepted narrative, as also relayed by the driver, as well as his son, John Starkey, is that he was mistaken for being Jewish on account of his beard and murdered in cold blood by an Arab brigand. Um, and I use that in air quotes, it's a quote. Um, Yossi Garfinkel uh, has recently theorized that it could have been a revenge killing uh, ordered by an aggrieved landowner at Kabeba, whereas David Usishkin has countered this theory and he detailed police reports at this time. Um, so these articles about Starkey's murder, as well as also recent, the recent book by Billy Melman, Empires of Antiquities or Empire of Antiquities presents uh, further evidence of this criminal act that occurred over 80 years ago now. And so while Ros and I, we don't personally follow the grudge theory, there were certainly tensions that existed between Starkey, the dig and the local people there. Um, but as I hope I've shown uh, in this presentation, there were positive relations between the local community and its expeditions need to be taken into account. These relations were not always harmonious, um, but I think that overall, we must say that they were mostly positive. While work continued uh, for the rest of the season, the loss of Starkey and the ongoing deterioration in terms of security meant that the time to depart. Um, there are a few reports about the condition of the site after the expedition left and during World War II. Um, uh, and it's worth noting that what happened to the village of Kabeba its population of several hundred people. They had to leave in 1948 at the time of 
Israel's War of Independence, also known as the Palestinian Nakba. Uh, there was armed action that led to the defeat of Egyptian forces and a number of buildings and property was destroyed in favor. Uh, I've often wondered about what happened to the descendants of the village, where they might be today. Uh, it will be really interesting to hear if anyone knows of anyone today who is a descendant of someone who, who can identify people in the photograph. Uh, and several years later, in the mid-1950s, Moshav, an agricultural uh, settlement, was established uh, adjacent to the site of the village of Kabeba, uh, where it remains today. And the archaeological site is now part of the National Parks of Israel. Uh, the site has been under periodic re-excavation from the late 60s until the present day. And I shared this photograph here of, in 1980, taken in 1983 when Olga Hoffman visited the Tel Aviv University Lakish Expedition in Israel as the guest of director David Sishkin, uh, where she shared her reminiscences with about 200 people. And I recommend uh, David's book to, for 2014 on biblical uh, for more information on the history of excavations there. Uh, alongside uh, others, um, Olga devoted uh, many years in processing the excavation finds and after World War II, completing the volumes uh, for Teller de Weir for the Wellcome Trust, uh, she carried out a number of activities, uh, as Felicity mentioned, PEF centenary exhibits, uh, lecture tours, excavating at Nimrud, researching scarab seals with uh, William Ward, uh, which focused on chronology in the East Mediterranean. She never took on uh, a formal academic job. Uh, she was awarded a fellow of the Society of Antiquaries um, uh, title, but it appears that she never really pursued an academic career. Perhaps she was happy to be independent and do her own thing. Um, we should um, really also think about Olga in terms of other women archaeologists at this time, particularly uh, British women archaeologists, and talk about Dorothy Garrard, uh, Gertrude Caton Thompson, Kathleen Kenyon, etc. So it's it's good to consider Olga alongside uh, these other well-known uh, contributors to uh, archaeology uh, in the region, in uh, the Levant. Uh, but it's also interesting to note, I mentioned W.F. Albright earlier, and also um, there was an article in 2019 by Jenny Abeling wondering why is it there weren't many women in biblical archaeology until fairly recently. And I think that's an interesting thing to look at and see what are the differences between, say, the British situation and the situation in the United States. So I think that could be interesting. And I urge you to so follow the website for Trailblazers for more information on, on these um, women archaeologists. Um, so what were the factors in play, at play with uh, Olga's uh, archaeological career? Well, family and personal networks played a pretty key role, as we saw. The letters are a veritable who's who. Uh, she was very well networked, and she also had family members uh, who were in high places. Um, quite influential. Her, her uncle was an admiral in the British Navy, was also stationed in Haifa at some points. Um, so there was a lot of networking that was going on. She had that intersection as well with the humanitarianism, um, which I think is really important to uh, consider. And of course, we have to also think about the um, cultural and political setting and the colonial aspects as well. She had uh, high-level connections. I mentioned her uh, uncle, a cousin, sorry, not her uncle, her cousin, who was an admiral in the British Navy. Um, 
She was able to meet with Sir Ronald Storrs in Nicosia in Cyprus, who was the governor at that point through those connections. She also knew people like in the Palestine uh, police force. Um, she was interested in Jerusalem social happenings. She attended many events. Uh, it was a cosmopolitan, politically charged world. Uh, she was interacting with members of Arab and Jewish communities alongside colonial and expat uh, residents. Uh, there are many other aspects that I could mention, um, but I urge you to read the book and also to explore the Palestine Exploration Fund uh, archive, the Olga Tufnell archive. And I thank everyone for all their contributions and help with this project. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Jack, for that thorough and very interesting presentation on the book. Um, congratulations on the book. And to say that um, the PDF of the book is available, free to download from the UCL, um, from UCL Press's uh, website. Um, we'll share that link, I'm sure, in, in a moment. And I would like to now um, invite uh, Amara um, to uh, Ask the first question, um, please, and of, of Ros Henry, who knew Olga Tufnell personally. Thank you very much. Thanks, Carol. Um, so yes, Roz, please um, give us uh, the benefit of your memories of Olga to kind of pull us into the, the personal aspect for you of editing this collection. Oh, hello, Amara. Um, well, um, of course, I found Olga a really marvellous employer, very kind, very patient, um, and a very nice person. Uh, I, I, I just I, um, walked into the institute not knowing anybody, <clears throat> trying to, to find um, employment there, because <clears throat> I was interested in the subject and wanted to know further. And Olga needed a, needed an assistant, so that was brilliant. So I I was set to work by her <clears throat> immediately um, on all sorts of interesting things, including processing a, a great number of bowls from the Foss Temple <clears throat> and all sorts of other things as well. Um, yes, I I found her very nice to work for. Um, and I found that she was very much respected by um, everybody else. And she always had a lot of visitors, uh, colleagues, students, uh, all asking her advice and talking to her. Um, her office was always very busy with people. Uh, when uh, visitors came, I used to scurry off down to the basement and get busy with the bowls of, of the Foss Temple again and all that sort of thing. Trying to remember who she had, uh, somebody, Barnet from the British Museum came a lot and I think I remember Torchina coming, but I may be mistaken, but I think I do. Um, yes, yeah, she was altogether a very nice person to work for, very kind to me, very considerate. Um, <clears throat> uh, when I developed a rash on my arms from uh, scrubbing shirts, 
in strong disinfect uh, strong detergent she sent me to casualty immediately to to, to see about it and when she went to america on her lecture tour she brought me back a really nice piece of costume jewelry uh, with sort of golden pearls and things so she was an absolutely wonderful person to work for and i admired her greatly and was very sorry when her when she retired and uh, and my work for her came to an end and um, the work that we'd done together on Lakeish 4 uh, was published and that was, that was the end of that. So um, I do remember her with uh, great affection. And I do, I would also like to mention that I had a lot of help with um, with August's background from her relative Sarah Micklem, who um, told me a great many things about August's uh, early life and family and invited me to stay at Langley's, and, which gave me a great insight into August's uh, early life and background. And also, um, August's great niece. Uh, <clears throat> Kathy Warwick, who came to see me and brought her, uh, a lot of photographs that you see, and some very interesting letters that Olga wrote to her grandmother, uh, describing her work for, for the Petries in, in London at the exhibitions. Um, so um, I got to I got to know uh, Olga a bit a bit further through through all those things, as well as knowing her. Uh, when I worked for her. Uh, when she retired, I didn't see very much of her, but I came to her last lecture in London at the Antiquaries. Um, and I think that was the last lecture she ever gave. And she was just the same Olga. Um, obviously older, a bit bent, um, but just the same um, sparkling wit and intelligence that she always had. And I was so, you know, pleased to have worked for her. And I'm so thrilled to, that this book of her letters has been published. Because um, I, I think uh, they're very important. Um, uh, addition to her life. And um, I'm very grateful to everybody who's helped to make this possible, including, of course, Jack, who, who has just been wonderful to work with. Um, and my grateful thanks to him, too, and indeed to everybody else. That's you too, Roz. It's Thank been a pleasure. You, <laughs> Lovely to hear about what it was. So I was going to also invite Felicity to ask the first question before opening up up to our audience as well. Thank you, Carol. Um, my question is for Jack, um, and it's about Olga and her relationship with the local villagers and the work, uh, the workforce at Tel Weir and her other sites. What kind of impression do you get of um, how Olga fitted in with the, uh, the local culture? Thanks, Felicity. That's a really great question. And I think um, 
it, it developed over time. Um, I think that the relationship she had at the um, at Telfara, for example, and then Tell the Jewel maybe weren't quite as long lasting. There were a few people who came from those digs um, who joined the, the team at Tell Dewar as well. So she continued those relationships. So they, there were some continued relationships with both um, some of the, uh, uh, the Egyptian workers, uh, for example, Mohammed Al-Kreti, uh, Ottoman Al-Kreti, who was the cook. Uh, so they sort of snagged uh, him from uh, the peat trees in a way, um, but also uh, meant some of the Bedouin workers as well, because they were more um, mobile. They, they could come closer and camp near to the uh, site. So there, there was definitely a continuation. Now the relationships, I think that uh, she was getting to know Arabic. And so she was beginning to understand, and certainly with Harding, the Lancaster Harding, they used to go and have Arabic lessons. And so they could get more familiar and become more conversant with the workers until they were uh, more comfortable. And so I think that she had a different relationship perhaps with the male workers uh, that she's on the dig with all the time uh, compared to maybe the, uh, the women and the children. And I think she's spending more time with the women and children in more of the clinical settings of the medical side of things. Um, in her role um, with the clinic, for example, we know that she sometimes even assisted with um, maternity even though she wasn't trained in this at all. You know, someone's having trouble giving birth. Get Olga, she'll, she'll manage to resolve it. So she shows up and lo and behold, the woman gives birth. So she didn't, have, she didn't claim any credit for this, but um, it's that kind of thing of, she began to uh, have closer relationships, I think because of that, um, that, that aspect of the, um, of the, the medical um, side. And she would take some of the uh, women to Jerusalem as well uh, from the village. Um, and so there's some interesting accounts of that as well. So I think she she got on well with everyone uh, that she, I think she pretty much got on with well with everyone. She was much loved and, uh, and uh, she, she really enjoyed being with those people as well. So um, please do put your questions in the chat. Um, we've all got lots of questions so um, ourselves, but we would like to open this out. We've got until 5.30 UK time. So please um, put your questions in the chat, anything you would like to ask about uh, the collections um, at the PF or um, at UCL, book itself and also of our, our editors and people who knew um, Olga Tufnell here. So Amara, would you like to ask another question? Or, <laughs> um, sure. Felicity, um, yes. I wondered, just following on, Roz, from what you said, whether you think Olga Tufnell would be pleased that her letters are being published today. <laughs> oh. Amara, I think she would be thrilled. Um, actually, I did wonder whether she um, may have intended them to be published because they are so very vivid um, and spontane uh, spontaneous, but also um, quite considered in a way. Um, 
and as the first uh, the first lot were typed, uh, I just wonder uh, when I came to to read them uh, whether she ever intended them to be published. Maybe she, or or even, or even form some sort of diary. I don't know, but um, I think she'd be very pleased that they were absolutely yes. I, I'd love to add to that if I may. Um, yeah, that um, one of the things about the letters, especially the earlier ones, I think actually all the way through, because she was writing them to many of them to her mother, and her mother was most likely reading them out to family and friends. And um, so you actually see in some of the letters where it says, not for, uh, not for sharing, you know? So there would be a little bit where it would say, please don't read this out basically, or, or share this with anyone else. So I think you can imagine these are being read out. So there's a dialogue here. There's a narrative that's uh, perhaps intended. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. Can I um, ask both of you, um, having gone worked on these letters so closely and intimately, do you both have a favourite letter? Well, I have a favourite letter. <laughs> it's the one where um, Olga and Harding, and possibly others as well, go to Jerusalem on Christmas Eve, I think it was, um, where, where the, to the Petrie's house where they were actually staying at that time, and started to sing carols outside. And um, Hilda Petrie comes out in her pyjamas and tells them to go away in no uncertain terms. And that to me illustrates uh, how Olga um, found Hilda Petrie's lack of sense of humor um, rather, um, well, she didn't really like it uh, because she herself has such a sense of humor. And she writes this letter in such a way that you can't help laughing to, 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 uh, the, uh, to, to, to see it all happening, you know. So vivid. Thank you. Jack has a favorite letter. Yeah, um, there's one. I'm just trying to pull it up so I can actually uh, quote it. But it's um, it's related to uh, Ol Olga's mother stays in the camp for uh, a period of time, and there's a period where we don't have any letters at all because her mother's there. So yeah. why would she need to? Uh, uh, tell her. So um, there's a letter here where she's writing to um, her, her mother and saying, oh, did I tell you that Mohammed El Kreti, that is, that's the cook, uh, asked very tenderly after you and said that he was in an awful, awful dither when you came into the kitchen at a jewel one day to ask him how the very delicious soup um, was made. Uh, the MP, that is Lady Petrie, I presume Madam Petrie, was with you, and he dared not divulge the disgraceful fact that there were onions in the soup. And yet he was terrified that you would guess it. You know onions are an, an anath anathema in a Petrie camp, and yet Prof always comments on the excellence of the soup when it is particularly full of the noxious stuff. <laughs> Fantastic, thank you. Um, 
So I've got another question for both of you, and that is, um, I really liked the fact that you included some of the drafts of articles that Olga was writing for newspapers, and I wondered if you could say a little bit more about um, her work, working on these sort of like public um, reports, if you like, of what's going on on site and, and um, you know, yeah what her role in sort of popularizing the archaeology for newspapers was. I think I'll let Jack answer this one. <laughs> yeah, um, so she, she did write some articles and some of them were published. I was able to track down one or two of them, but I didn't have access to uh, like a newspaper library at that time. So I didn't, so I only checked a few of them to see what, how they were actually published. And, I think one of the really interesting ones, I think that was an American newspaper. She wrote a, she wrote a draft article uh, for, uh, I think it was Tell Ella Jewel. Um, and so she did this really as a, as a favor for um, Petrie, I guess, for Philinda's Petrie or the Petries. But I think, I don't know if she was paid. I think she did get paid for some of the articles that she uh, wrote. Um, but what was interesting in one of them, I know that she, she writes that, um, part of her text was used in the article, but then her name is not actually cited at all. So she's, I think about half of the article is actually her words, but she's not given a credit. So um, that, that was, um, I think one of the American newspapers and um, maybe it was the Herald or I'm not sure, Herald Tribune. Um, so that, that there were, she, she did write very, um, very well. Um, she wrote for a popular audience and she knew, she knew the kind of audience. She played up the biblical side of things. Uh, she evoked ideas of dusty archeological sites with potsherds scattered around. Um, but then she would also evoke biblical scenarios and biblical characters and say, imagine if so-and-so, I don't know, Joseph was here or, you know, these different, um, or Jacob, or, you know, she, she, would, uh, she would evoke these uh, biblical uh, figures as well in her articles and letters. Mm. Thank you. Felicity, do you have a... Yeah, I do. I was wondering about um, Olga's um, enduring fascination with decorative motifs, everything from scarabs in a kind of archaeological context to um, you know, the jewellery and the headgear, the, 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 the dress of, of, of the local women in particular, and how, where this starts, where does this interest in decorative motifs and traditions begin, do you think? I, I think, I don't know if Ros has anything uh, on this. Um, I, I think it was... Um, her artistic sort of flair and background. I mean, she studied art in, and painting uh, in, in Florence. And um, it's surprising we don't have more. I don't know if there are more of her artistic works that are available. I wasn't able to find any, but maybe some people out there can find them. Um, I think that perhaps once she came to Egypt, and also to, I certainly she was extremely excited about um, ancient Egypt when she visits there. She, the descriptions are really vivid, the bright colors, um, the wall paint, the tomb paintings, 
um, she's a communist who, you know, she really does uh, portray this in a very vivid way. She talks about the decoration of the tents as well um, in uh, near, near Farah and uh, Ajul. Um, and she's, yeah, she, she's definitely paying attention to the, the fashion, the, the Palestinian costume, the uh, dress and ornaments. And I think she was, I don't know where that really comes from, but she also, she, she acquired some as well. And uh, she, she acquired and even made some of her own costumes. Um, so I think perhaps the ornaments were of great interest. I don't know, maybe it's just that artistic yeah. mentality also drew her to the scarabs and the seals with the patterns that they have. And she was a great pattern finder. Yeah. You know, she, she was being able to decipher um, these chronological connections between all these sites. And I think it started with uh, the scarabs they found at Tel Aviv, and she published. And she really continued this her whole life. She's always looking for these motifs. Yeah. And I think she just had that, that eye for it. You know, she was uh, continually searching for those patterns. So that's, that's a very archeological kind of mind, I think. I think so. I mean, you can see also in some of the later material from places like Aden, and Iraq, there are drawings of, you know, jewelry, and also this interest in how things are made as well. You know, the, the potters in Cyprus, you know, who's doing the making, how are they doing it? Um, it's it's uh, a very, uh, she's a mixture, isn't she, of that kind of ethnographic and archeological mind, I think. Any questions from anyone else? <laughs> Don't be shy. <laughs> I'm, I'm interested. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm sort of interested um, in the sort of relationship between people at the Institute of Archaeology at that time, if we can, um, and sort of the, the sort of scene, the scene there and how people interacted, both how um, sort of earlier in her life and then sort of later in her life and the role of the Institute of Archaeology. Um, if you can sort of comment on that. Um, well, the Institute, the old Institute in Regent's Park, uh, St. John's Lodge, <clears throat> really more like a club than an institution because um, it was very small. I mean, the, the small number of people com comparatively. Uh, and people came and went um, and everybody knew each other. And it was a very close knit sort of thing, very unlike uh, how things are today. Uh, so I do remember um, a lot of people there uh, because they all came and uh, uh, they all could talk to each other. They all talked to Olga. And occasionally they spoke to me, uh, although I was obviously very junior, but that they were all terribly nice and that didn't seem to matter. So we had people like um, Shepherd Freer along the corridor and we had Kathleen Kenyon when she came back from Jericho. And we had um, Malouin who came and went and we had Zoino who came and went and we had, um, I'm trying to think hard if, who else? Molly Cotton came and went. Um, there were lots of students. Um, well, not so many, actually. They're PhD students, really. No undergraduates, of course. 
um, there was uh, Crystal Bennett, who became a great friend, and Arne um, Dajani, who became, uh, I think he became Inspector of Antiquities in Jordan, if I remember. Um, and we had Yadi, Yegel Yadin, who uh, came and talked to Olga a lot. Uh, they all came and talked to Olga a lot. Um, trying to think who else was there. Um, well, it was a very nice, close sort of community. Um, uh, very enjoyable and altogether lovely. Um, so, um, very happy place, really, as far as I am at own. So, and, of course, Olive Starkey, um, Starkey's um, sister, worked in the photographic department, because I didn't realise at the time <clears throat> who she was. Because, you know, although I was pr busy proofreading Lakish um, 3, no, I mean 4, sorry, 4, obviously, um, really, you know, I wasn't really terribly aware of, of who she was, um, which I regret now, of course, because, you know, could have asked her lots of questions. <clears throat> um, I can't really think of anybody else, but um, certainly, a, certainly a wonderful place to work in. Very, very unlike any, anywhere today, really. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> giving us a sense of uh, the community. We've got some, we've got some hands up. People, people are not putting questions in the chat, but we've got Michael McDonald who has put his hand up. Uh, um, I'm going to um, allow you to talk <laughs> if you're willing to do that. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, uh, can you hear me? We can hear you, but we can't see you. <laughs> yes, I, I, I don't seem to have been allowed to be, be seen. I don't know quite why, but uh, anyway. Um, I think there is a problem that uh, we can't, uh, the, the audience can't go on the chat. It's only the, the actual panel <laughs> on the chat, which may be why you're not asking questions. Um, okay. Would you do you have a question? I, I do have a question. Sorry about that. <laughs> I wondered if you could tell us something about her time in Aden, which must have been very interesting. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. So, um, yeah, I, I have to admit that I have not um, looked at the letters from that time. But I am aware of them, and there was a there's been someone uh, who has actually studied them quite a bit, and I think was preparing them for publication, and has also presented on the on the topic of the letters from uh, visits to Aden. Uh, Felicity, you you remember the? Yeah. Um, uh, yes, I mean that that uh, that's one of those projects that kind of emerged for a while, and then. Disemerged. It's <laughs> Carl, Carl Phillips. Yeah, That's right. Carl Phillips um, has, yeah. has done quite a bit of research on this, but, but I'm not uh, sure yeah. if I've seen much that's been published. Yeah, yeah I, I, because I think she went at the same time as uh, Langster Harding when he was asked to go and set up the museum in Aden, and um, I suspect that she went at the same time. Uh, yeah. But what else she did there, I don't know. 
I know that she was really interested in the pottery and she did um, she did uh, document pottery production. I remember that from Carl Phillips lecture. Also, I don't know if there was a connection that she visited, but Charles Ng, who was on the dig with them at Teller de Weir, he was actually an intelligence officer who was working in Aden in the 1960s. And I believe, um, I don't know anything about what he was doing there, but uh, it's possible that they may have also met at that time if he was based there. Well, thank you very much. And uh, I'll shut up now. You can mute. <laughs> thank you, Michael. <laughs> we do apologize. We had enabled the chat and we do apologize that people don't appear to have uh, been able to put questions in. But we would like to thank um, Jack and, oh, we have got another hand up. <laughs> so, and, and Roz and our discussants here, we have Martin Worthington, who I'm going to allow to talk um, to. Have I got the right one? Okay. Hello, am I now audible? Yes, you are. <laughs> Thank you all so much. I had a question for Ros, which is, I love this idea of walking into the Institute without knowing anybody and coming out as an assistant. That must have been quite a first meeting. So I was just wondering if you could tell us a bit more about it. Thank you. Well, um, what can I tell you? Um, that's just really what happened. Um, um, I, I I'd got a, a slight connection uh, uh, with um, the fact that my aunt had dug at Roxeter with Kathleen Kenyon. And uh, when I was talking to her about um, how I wanted to, uh, to, to do some more about learning about uh, Palestinian archaeology without actually being a student, because I felt I couldn't really go on being a student anymore, um, she suggested I, I talk to, to Miss Kenyon, she was then. And I went looking for her at the Institute, but she was actually away at Jericho. And uh, so I met Edward Piddock, the secretary, in the hall and explained to him what I was uh, doing. And he said, oh, go up the stairs and knock on Miss Tufnell's door, which I did. And um, she hired me on the spot. So um, th that was really how it was. I mean, it was complete chance, really. Uh, and I'd just come down from university. I mean, I didn't know anything at all um, about archaeology, but I was interested to know more. And uh, I seemed to fit what she wanted doing. And, um, and we got on very well. Well, I like to think we did anyway. Um, and that's how it happened. Uh, and it was a, a terribly lucky chance for me, because after I... Uh, finished working for her when she retired from the Institute. Um, well, really from the Wellcome Trust actually, but gave up being at the Institute. She's sort of handed me on to Kathleen Kenyon, which was an altogether alarming experience and quite different, but also <laughs> very enjoyable in a strange sort of way. It was a very different time and a smaller Smaller community, very clearly. Very different time, very small yeah. community. And in, in those far off days, uh, you could sort of do what you wanted. I mean, it was, there was no pressure, as it were. The world was your oyster, in a way, as it, it's not at all like, 
like today. Yes. Um, you could do anything you wanted. You could ask anybody. You could talk to anybody you wanted. I mean, um, in those, it was still quite rare, actually, for women to even to have been to university. Um, in a way, I mean, there are only two colleges at Oxford that had women. Then, no, sorry, there were five actually. When I think about it, there were five. Sorry, five. Um, um, but um, and of course, n none of the men's colleges admitted women. Um, and universities in general were full up with um, ex-service people. It was quite, quite, you know, difficult to get in. It's, so it's really remarkable, as, uh, as Jack highlighted, um, the contribution of, of women at, in archaeology from this time. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah but at the same time, um, I, I never felt that it was strange to work for a woman or to be a woman, if you see what I mean. That's it's, good. <laughs> it didn't occur to me that... Yeah. That, that there was anything funny about it, you know, and I don't, I think, and um, all my colleagues and friends thought the same. And we're rather uh, astonished today at the, uh, at, at how it's considered, you know, how women are, it's, it's, um, it's a sort of feminine aspect of things today. Uh, we find rather strange because we never thought anything about it. We thought it was okay just to, to do whatever you wanted. Great, <laughs> and travel <laughs> and have the opportunities. Yeah. Well, um, I'd like... So, go, sorry, go. I was just... Well, we're coming to the end of our time and today, and I would just like to thank everybody, especially Jack and yourself, Ross, for... <laughs> sharing um, your experience of Olga uh, Tufnell. And I'd like to encourage people to check out the book, um, to uh, check out the PDF if you're interested in seeing the archives. And also Amara Thornton has been doing wonderful work on filming in antiquity and, and with the archives at the Institute of Archaeology. So she has her own webpage and if you'd like to reach out to her as well. Thank you can very just, much indeed. Carol, <laughs> can I just say, um, it's thanks to Michael McDonald that yes. the films were made available to us. So yeah, thank you, Michael. Uh, yes, yeah, these are, yes, yeah. Okay, thank you, Michael. And it's <laughs> great that you raised your hand so we could speak to you directly. So thank you very much, everybody, for um, all the presentations. It's been a pleasure to do this joint, this joint lecture. I'm sorry for the technical, technical problems that we seem to have experienced, but thank you very much. And um, look out for more events, both at the PF and the CBRL in future. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. Okay. Thanks so much. Thank you.